Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the episode of today. So today's episode, I'm going to be talking about dealing with feelings of anxiety. This is a huge one. This is one that I feel like we can all get something out of, whether you're someone that consciously has anxious and stressful thoughts, ruminating all the time, spiraling thoughts, or whether you're someone that's, you know, Every so often, occasionally, you get plagued with these kind of intrusive thoughts or stressful thoughts or really anxious thoughts. So I'm going to be going through a whole bunch of steps. I think it's around five steps. Let's see how we go. And I'm going to help you walk yourself through all these thoughts and you're going to find some tools that are going to help you deal with these thoughts because it's not about how to forget about them, how to suppress them. It's about how to approach them in the most productive way possible in a way that you're still paying attention to what needs attention, but you're also not letting it consume your life because you can't avoid stress or drama in your life. That's just not possible, you know, unless you live in a rock and then you're probably just going to be uh, uh, not in a rock but under a rock and then you're probably just going to be extremely unfulfilled. So with life comes anxiety and stress and situations that don't go your way. But what you want to aim to achieve or what you want to train yourself up to do is to be able to have these things occur, be able to kind of compartmentalize them and have them be proportionate to the rest of your life. And what I mean by proportionate is sometimes there'll be one stressor and we let it take over every aspect of our life, our full attention. We think about it all the time. We can't enjoy our social time. We can't enjoy our time with our family or our partners. We're stressed at work. We're str- you know, it's just, it can, it's all consuming instead of having it proportionate to the weight of the actual stress. Okay. So you can get to a point, no matter how much you've stressed in the past and no matter how much you ruminate with your thoughts, you can get to a point where you can take something that normally consumes you and minimize it to a point where it's proportionate to, to, the actual thing and be able to deal with it and process it and continue on and still really be able to enjoy every other aspect of your day, still be able to be present and have fun and even at times forget about that current stressor. So that is the episode of today. Now, I don't have much of a life update. Do I? No. I don't. Anyway, if I really should pause and think about it, but let's just go with I don't. So we're going to go into our brain fact and then we'll get straight into the topic of today's episode. And then we've got a great, great listener question at the end of the episode. So please stay tuned and have a listen to that because it's all about um, like self-love and advice around when you feel like you're plateauing and how to take it to the next level when you, when you felt like you're making all this progress and then you've plateaued and where do you go from there? So that's what the listener question is about today. Uh, good times, brain fact time. Okay, so the brain fact of today is all around carbon monoxide poisoning, which I'm actually surprised that I haven't ever covered this before because I love talking about how cells interact in the body and just poisoning in general, which sounds a bit morbid, but I find it very fascinating. Anyway, carbon monoxide poisoning, you've probably heard of it before or seen it in movies, but a basic example of it would be where someone's left the car running and they've either been in the car or in the garage or in a room where there's no airflow and the gases that are coming out from the exhaust of the car end up killing that person. So, or they end up passing out. But basically that is carbon monoxide poisoning where you're inhaling carbon monoxide and it causes you know, there's, you know, a whole range of 
um, things that you can experience and the worst one being death, okay? Why is it that inhaling carbon monoxide leads to death? So what's actually happening in the body? So carbon monoxide is toxic to us when we inhale it because of the effect that it has on hemoglobin. And it has no smell, no taste, you can't see it, so you have to kind of understand how you can be poisoned by carbon monoxide to kind of avoid it, basically. What is a hemoglobin? So a hemoglobin is a protein within your red blood cells, and its role is to carry oxygen throughout the body and also to release the oxygen in the areas of the body that need it. And the hemoglobin is comprised or partially comprised of these four protein segments, and those four segments are called heme groups. And in between those four segments of the heme groups, there is an unstable iron atom in the middle, okay? So your body's pumping around red blood cells and you breathe oxygen in. The oxygen molecules, when they come into contact with hemoglobin within the red blood cells, um, they bind to each one of these four segments, the heme groups. So you've got four oxygen molecules binding to each heme group per hemoglobin. And this binding is a low affinity, which means that it's a very weak bind. And the reason it's a weak bind is that the oxygen needs to be released quite quickly where it is needed in the body. So it's transporting this oxygen. It's got a weak bind, so it can just kind of shake off the oxygen and then pump oxygen to that area of the body when needed. Um, so that's why it's, a, it's called a weak affinity as opposed to a strong affinity. Um, so now we've got these four oxygen molecules for every hemoglobin. Once it's bound to the hemoglobin, it actually changes the name from being a hemoglobin to an oxyhemoglobin. And now the red blood cells are cruising around, taking this oxyhemoglobin around the body to the areas that need oxygen. How does it know where to take the oxygen to? So areas of the blood that are low in oxygen and high in carbon dioxide, which is what you exhale, so you inhale oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide, Areas that are high in carbon dioxide are acidic to some degree. And when there's a higher level of carbon dioxide in the blood, it's because there's higher metabolism in the area. So, for example, when you're exercising, there's going to be a higher metabolism in certain parts of the body. So it's going to become more acidic. Lower levels of oxygen are going to be there and it's going to need oxygen. So as carbon dioxide levels go up, more oxygen needs to be released. So when these cells carrying oxygen are in areas of the body where there's higher acidity, the four oxygen molecules get dumped and released into the bloodstream and then you get the oxygen that you need and you continue to survive and those parts of the body stay alive. So that is how oxygen is distributed when all is well in the world. However, all of that changes when carbon monoxide is inhaled. So remember how I said that the oxygen binding is has a weak affinity. It's quite weak, so it can be released quite easily into the bloodstream. Well, carbon monoxide has a much, much, much stronger bond. Its affinity is a lot higher. So this means that once carbon monoxide binds to something, it's a lot harder to unbind it, and it's going to stay bound for around a the five-hour mark. Now, carbon monoxide is also binding to these heme groups. So the same heme group that oxygen would bind to, carbon monoxide rolls on in and fucking cock blocks oxygen and binds to one of the four heme groups, okay? And once it's bound, 
oxygen can't bind on that heme group. Only one thing is binding at the same time at that time. And it binds to one of these four heme groups. Now only three oxygen are binding and you've got one carbon monoxide and three oxygen that are binding. And now once carbon monoxide binds to uh, hemoglobin, it's now called carboxyhemoglobin. Now, Remember that I said that there was this unstable atom in the middle of the four heme groups. Carbon monoxide stabilizes that atom. And when that happens, that iron atom, and when that happens, it causes a change in the structure of the heme groups. So this causes the oxygen molecules, the other three oxygen that, has, that have bound, it causes them to get stuck there for the duration that carbon monoxide is bound. So around the five-hour mark. So even though some oxygen are binding, they can't get knocked off. They can't get released into the areas of the body that need it. So now they're trapped basically in that carboxy hemoglobin. Um, so what does this mean? That means that the groups where carbon monoxide has bound to, it can't deliver any oxygen to the body. And the more hemoglobin that it gets bound to, the less oxygen that's being delivered as oxygen is like basically trapped in these cells and they can't be let go off in the areas that have higher acidity in the areas that need it. So now we've got low levels of oxygen and this is what leads to asphyxiation. And then in severe cases or in higher dose cases, it leads to death. Symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning are headaches, dizziness, um, then to go higher, to go more intense, you've got chest pains, irregular heartbeat and vomiting, then to make if, when it goes when there's more, that leads to loss of consciousness and then the brain shuts down and that then leads to death. Um, and this is all, all because of lack of oxygen because oxygen is what keeps the entire body alive, obviously. Now, smoking also delivers carbon monoxide because of the combustion of the cigarette. And when there's not enough oxygen during the burning phase, then that is what produces carbon monoxide. It's way more technical than that, but I'm not going to go into the technicalities of pyrotechnics or whatever you want to call it. But basically, when there's more oxygen in the combustion of something, you're not getting the production of carbon monoxide. When there's low levels of oxygen during the combustion, you're getting carbon monoxide. So in a cigarette you're getting a release of carbon monoxide. So smokers have really low levels of carbon monoxide poisoning, very like mild levels of carbon monoxide poisoning. And someone who would smoke over 20 cigarettes a day can have nine to 10 times more amount of carbon monoxide in the blood compared to a non-smoker because all of us have a tiny, tiny, maybe not all of us if you live somewhere like absolutely pure, but most of us would have a really small amount if we are a non-smoker of carbon monoxide in your bloodstream just from being exposed to random toxins throughout the day and, and chemicals and, and whatever. But if you are a smoker that smokes 20 or more cigarettes a day, you could have potentially 10 times higher amounts and that is deemed to be um, mild carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, how is it treated? So if it's caught early, patients are given pure oxygen through a breathing mask or in like a chamber. They're put in a chamber and they're giving really high levels of just pure oxygen. And when oxygen levels are really, really, really high, that can actually unbind the carbon monoxide from the heme group a lot faster. So it basically speeds up that five-hour process. So it goes from five hours to potentially 1.5 hours. Um, so if someone, if it's if you haven't taken that big a dose or if you haven't inhaled that big an amount, then there is a chance that you can survive if you get put onto straight pure oxygen for a couple of hours. Now, one of the signs of carbon monoxide poisoning 
to tell if someone's been poisoned by carbon monoxide is they get this like really red cherry color on their skin, like their hands go like quite a bright red. And that's because of the, um, what's the name of it? The carb carboxyhemoglobin. And that's what causes this bright red color. But normally when, if you get to a point where someone's poisoning is that severe that they're getting that redness in their skin, um, they've probably died by that point. So that is how what carbon monoxide poisoning is i found that really really interesting and of course if you're someone that's had mild levels of carbon monoxide poisoning and you're getting these like mild symptoms then understand that it takes like a series of hours for it to be knocked off but if you're constantly being exposed to carbon monoxide then that's where you're going to have like stronger symptoms like headaches vomiting nausea all of that so just be wary but that is the brain fact of today let's get straight into the episode Okay, so like I said, I'm going to be talking today about how to deal with anxious and stressful emotions. Um, and there's, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of examples of what kind of emotions you could be feeling because there's some that feel like they absolutely take over your whole life, some that take over massive portions of your day. But we could all be going through something different right now. And this, what I'm about to talk about, can be applied to absolutely anything. Now, the effects of this, I mean, you, if you're going through something that's like a heartbreak where you've absolutely just had your heart ripped out and stomped on, you know, something's going to take a lot longer to get over than other things. But there you will find benefit with this no matter what you apply it to. Okay. So some things you'll feel like, wow, that's put everything into perspective. I'm going to feel so much better. And other things you're going to be like, wow, that really helped take the edge off so I can find a little bit more balance while I'm going through this grief or heartbreak or something. Okay. So examples of this, it could be heartbreak. Um, it could be things that, you know, financial stress. It could be study or work related tasks that you're like, I don't know how to do this. And there's a deadline and I have to be able to find out how to do this. And you start freaking out. It could be health concerns, time restraints. It could be things that you've procrastinated on, like a to-do list of shit that needs doing, but hasn't been done. And now you've left it all too late and it's just making you freak out. So one thing that I want to, I'm, I'm going to be giving you like a five-step kind of process to, to deal with these feelings of anxiety and stress and, you know, ruminating thoughts or all of that. But one thing that I want you to think about is if you're someone who's always been like this and you've always had super anxious thoughts and you've really, really struggled to kind of get a hold of them, it doesn't have to be that way. And there is a way of training your mind and changing the way that you process things because it's not about forgetting something or acting like as if it's not important or not treating it as a priority. But it is about trying to still create balance in your life and still, while there's a stressor in your life, acknowledge that that exists, but still be able to be really present and enjoy other areas of your life. Because for a lot of people, things get so stressful and they get so anxious that they'll have one thing going on and they cannot enjoy any other part of their life. It's just all consuming. And it doesn't have to be that way. Okay. All of us can get stuck in it, no matter how much practice you've done, but it's important to remember that there's always these tools that you can use to soften the blow, to bring everything back into perspective and to be able to have a better balance and to still enjoy the people that are around you, the things that you still do love um, while dealing with the issue at hand. Okay. Um, 
Now, for a lot of people that have a lot of anxiety, that then leads to catastrophic thoughts, catastrophizing, ruminating thoughts, spiraling. And, you know, the effects of that is it, one, it completely takes over your entire day. So just, just see how much of this you can relate to. So it can takes over your entire day. You struggle to think about other things. Um, because your mind keeps going back to this one thing that you're anxious about or one thing that you're stressing about. You think about this one thing disproportionately to all the other areas of your life that are requiring your attention, but this one just seems to absolutely take over. So you don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with anything else. It affects your attention span. You might find that your focus is fucked because you're just, it keeps, every time you try and focus on a task, your mind is somewhere else. You can't get in a flow state. You can't get in the zone. Um, It affects your sleep. And when stressful situations and anxiety affects your sleep, it becomes kind of this vicious cycle that feeds itself because when your sleep is affected, the next day your performance is even worse, your memory is not great, you're not as, you know, you don't perform as good on the tasks that you need done. So then that adds to your stress and adds to your anxiety and then your sleep is bad again. So it's kind of this circle that feeds itself or cycle. And then it's probably affecting your interaction with other people and your relationships with other people. Um, you find that you're not as as present for the people around you or you can't have as much fun or you can see your friends having all these fun conversations and you're there, you know, almost, almost feeling like you're watching them talk but you're like in your head like fuck trying to process all this shit that's stressing you out. You've got this heightened energy and and your heart is racing and, you know, we've all been there. It's fucked. So what can you do? So I've got a whole bunch of points. The first are quite quick, but then I'm going to give you like a bit of a a step-by-step process to do when you are in this zone, in this space. So the first thing you're going to do, and ideally if you can, you can write this down or you can just pause for every question and then answer it or write the questions down and then do it at the end of the episode. But I really want you to put this into practice. Don't just think about it and then I'll do it later because you'll forget half of the points, okay? So the first thing you want to do is, number one, you want to ask yourself, how much of this thing is in my control? And write it down. Write down what is in your control and what is not in your control. And it sounds like a pretty basic thing to do. But the reason you need to do this is because sometimes you – take on more than what is your responsibility to take on emotionally. For example, when you go through a heartbreak, sometimes you're expecting so much of yourself when a lot of what's gone down is not necessarily in your control. So you've got to think, okay, what about this scenario in this heartbreak, in this breakup is in my control? Okay, I can't control the person's movement. I can't control how they think about me moving forward. I can't change their mind. I can't blah, 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 blah. I also can't control how quickly I'm going to be able to move out. But there are factors within that that I can control. So what can I do in those factors? I can ask these people, I can look around here, I can do whatever. So sometimes you think I've got to move out now or I've got to do this thing now or I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. But because a lot of those things are not in your control, you feel shitter about yourself. So write it down. What's in your control and what is not in your control? That will already lighten the the psychological load when you start to realize how much of it is. It's just not in your control and there's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well just take a breath. The second thing is you're going to ask yourself, how much of the things that are within my control can be in my control today? What about this, if, I, if anything, am I capable of doing today? 
Because when you feel that, oh, wait, there's one thing here, even if it's just a tiny thing that you do, you start to feel like you've regained a little bit of control and you start to feel a little bit calmer about the situation. Even if it's just writing things down for a conversation that you're going to have in the future and just putting your thoughts on paper. But if there's the smallest thing you can do, you should do it because then you start going from being the victim of the scenario to feeling a little bit proactive or very proactive. And the moment you start to implement some action, even if it's tiny, it changes how you view what it is that you're going through. You start to feel a little bit more empowered. And empowerment versus feeling unempowered, you can't compare the two. And a lot of the time when you're going through something really, really stressful that's causing you anxiety, you're in a position of feeling disempowered. Okay, that's one of the main reasons why it's causing you so much stress. Because if you felt that you were completely in power and you could deal with it, it would not be causing you anxiety. I like to label anxiety as, this is how I view anxiety. Anxiety is the gap between where you are and where you think you should be. And if it was easy to get to where you think you should be and if the steps were clear and if you knew that it was completely in your power, then there would be no anxiety because you'd be like, yeah, easy, done. But anxiety comes about when you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to control this situation or I can't control this situation because it's got to do with someone hating me or bitching about me or breaking up with me or whatever it is. Um, And because you feel that you don't have power over the situation, you're struggling to come to terms with where you are now versus where you think you should be. That's how I look at anxiety. Okay, so the, the next thing, number three, is can I name the thing? And what I mean by that is can you put a name to the exact feeling that you are feeling right now, whether it's fear, whether it's stress, whether it's anticipation of something, whether it's whatever heartbreak, whatever it is, but get specific because when you put a name to something, you're able to compartmentalize that thing and you're actually able to process that thing and understand it a lot better. So try and name what's on your mind. There are studies that have been done around people naming their emotions when they're in a state of fear and how much it actually helps them deal with what's going on um, and instead of avoiding it or pushing past it. So there's a study that was done on tarantulas um, and it was people that had arachnophobia, fear of spiders. And they had different groups. They had people that were just not saying anything at all. There were people that were just trying to distract themselves while around the tarantula. And then there were people that had to name exactly their fear and their feeling while they were looking at the tarantula. So they were saying, wow, I'm really scared of that spider. I don't like the hairiness of its legs and the size of that spider. And they would describe everything they went through. They found that out of all the groups, the people that reported much lower levels of fear the second time around were the people that named exactly what was going on. And they believe that the reason for this is because it helps you, it gives you an insight into what it is that you're experiencing in that moment. So it's kind of like this idea of being able to watch yourself go through that feeling. So instead of trying to be on autopilot, you're able to kind of direct it a little bit because there's a massive difference between being in the emotion versus looking at it from the outside and analyzing the emotion, a very big difference. And being in the emotion, you feel like you're not in control. You start ruminating, you're kind of, you're kind of, um, uh, 
a victim to the external circumstances and a victim to your own emotions. Whereas if you can step back, name it, analyze it, you've almost removed yourself from it and looking at it. And that kind of makes it smaller. It stops it from at least expanding. And it's kind of like, yeah, just observing yourself think when you start to name these things. Now, there's a psychologist called Dr. Dan Siegel who came up with the phrase, name it to tame it. And he says that when you experience significant internal tension or anxiety, you can reduce, reduce your stress up to 50% by simply noticing it and naming your state. When you can identify it, you don't have to be in it, okay? So if you can see it, if you can observe it, then it means that you've been able to step aside and remove yourself from it a little bit. And this also stops you from being super reactive in the moment in this heightened emotional state. And the emotion normally will take control of you, but in this scenario, you're now taking control of the emotion. So it's not to say the emotion disappears, but it's to say it's now way more under control and I'm now kind of able to push it away from me and I'm not a part of it. It's just existing there and I don't have to be one with this drama or anxiety that's going on. So basically, know, know the importance of labeling your ev- emotions so you don't have to avoid it. That's the main thing you want to be thinking about. The next thing, number four, the next thing you're going to do is put pen to paper, if you haven't already for the first two steps, I want you to put pen to paper and write down the following. Number one, what is on my mind? This, this is helping you name it. So this is kind of a, a, a carry on from number three, but in more in depth. So number one, you write down what's on my mind and you write down all the thoughts. Like I'm feeling worthless. I feel like I'm not good enough for this person, or I feel like I'm a fraud. I can't get this thing done at work. Or I feel like people are talking shit about me behind my back and I'm feeling whatever it is that you're going through, try and pinpoint what you are feeling, what's on your mind. Number two, write down when did this feeling start or what is causing this feeling? Because sometimes people will go a whole day being like, I'm anxious, I feel anxious, I feel anxious. And then if you say, well, when did it start? Oh, I don't know. What triggered it? Oh, I'm not sure. You know, we hate the feeling of anxiety so much and stress so much that we'll, we will fucking push, push, push past, push past, shove it under the rug, try to avoid it, try to avoid it because it's an ugly feeling. But ironically, when you face it and when you try and break it down is when it subsides. You actually take the power away when you draw attention to it. So when did it start? Did you wake up with this feeling? Did you see a message and there was a wording and it triggered this response and now you've been anxious all day because you think someone's pissed off at you? Did your boss look at you weirdly? Like when when did it start? Try and pinpoint it. Think back. When did it start or what is causing this? What triggered it? Number three, what are the symptoms of my feeling right now? Is my heart beating? Do I feel like hot and flustered? Does my face feel hot? Do I feel exhausted? Am I distracted? So physical symptoms and emotional symptoms. Like do I feel like I want to scream or do I just want to avoid everyone? Or do I feel like going out and drinking and just letting my head down because I'd want to, you know, what am I feeling? Write all those things down and it's good to write these down. And every time you feel stressed or anxious, it's really important to write these things down because you start to identify a pattern. Wow, when I'm really avoiding stresses at work, I notice that I go out and drink a lot. Or when I feel unworthy in front of my friends, I notice that I just retreat and I don't really talk to anyone and I, I stay, you know, in my own bubble alone, festering. You know, you, you will notice a pattern in your own behavior depend, depending on what it is that you're reacting to. 
Number four, write down, is there something I can do right now to alleviate it? So certain stresses might be caused by your own behavior. And what I mean by that, let's say you had an argument with someone and even if you were in the right, maybe you snapped at them and you said something really, something that you regret. And then you walk away and you're like, oh my God, and you feel really uneasy and you feel just awful. Maybe something to alleviate it could just be apologizing for how you behaved. You don't have to apologize for what you did because maybe you think you're in the right, but maybe apologize like I shouldn't have snapped at you. That was unfair. We should be able to have an argument and be civil, yet I yelled at you and that was not cool. That already is going to alleviate a lot of the tension. Um, Is there something, an appointment that you can book in? Maybe you're stressing about all these health concerns and I don't have time. Maybe just take the action and book that appointment right here, right now, and you'll already start to feel like you've got things under control. Can you dedicate a couple of minutes to doing something that's that's the cause of your stress? Um, Can you message someone asking them for advice? Uh, there's all these small things that you can do right now to alleviate what it is that you're doing. But you can also do something like, maybe I need a time out right now. Maybe I know that for me, just walking outside, walk around the block, fresh air, no music, nothing, just fresh air. Walking around, that, that's going to help me. Can I go outside? Can I get some a bit brighter light? Like there's always going to be something that you can try, at least try, that will alleviate it, which will be much better than you sitting there and festering. So always try and take that little step and see how you feel. Write that down. Uh, Number five, ask yourself, what is the next thought? Now, this is a great way to really observe your thoughts and watch yourself think and, and remove yourself from the emotion. Ask yourself, what's my next thought? And then you write it down and then you say, and then the next thought. And what's the next thought? And you're going to get to a point where you're so present in the moment trying to observe what the next thought is going to be that you're not going to be able to write down any next thought because you're so in the moment. It's almost like two versions of yourself have been divided and one's watching the other and the other's watching. And then boom, that's the stillness. That's the sweet spot. That's when you're like, wow, I'm, I'm out of my noisy mind. I've reached a point where I've removed myself and everything's okay. Right now, There's no other ruminating thought because I've been trying to preempt what the next one's going to be. And because I'm so present trying to, then there's nothing. Because when you shed light on this, it shrinks. It doesn't grow. It doesn't like being in the light. Anxiety and stress wants to live in the dark. These ruminating thoughts like to live in the dark, the darkness of your subconscious mind. So if you can shed light and preempt what the next thought is going to be and wait and attention and presence and wait, those thoughts dissipate pretty quickly. It's pretty amazing. And it takes a lot of presence, but it gets easier and easier every time you do it. You're so in the moment by watching yourself think that you become really in tune with yourself and really in tune with observing the self. Okay. Then the last one, number five, after you've written all these things down, the last point is to then get outside. Get outside. Even if you're sitting on your doorstep, I don't care. Get outside and get some fresh air and change your posture because while all this is going on and while you're writing all of this down, your physicality is still in that zone of stress, anxiety, whatever. Now, once you've been able to become really present where you can't think of the next thought because you're really in the zone and you've removed yourself from that emotion, this is the prime time to get up and change your physicality. Take some deep breaths, stretch your arms up. The reason I say get outside, especially if it's daylight, is, well, fresher air, but then ideally if it's the daylight, sunlight. 
and that really starts to change your mood. So you're getting some sunlight, you're becoming more alert, you're more in the, in the moment and you're getting some fresh air. Move your body, take some deep breaths, you're stretching, you're opening it up, jump up and down a couple of times, do fucking high knees or star jump, whatever, whatever you want. But that's the last thing out of those five points. So what? write down what's on my mind, when did this start or what's causing it, what am I feeling and what are the symptoms of this feeling, physical symptoms and emotional symptoms? Is there something I can do right now to alleviate it? Ask myself what is the next thought and keep asking what is the next thought until there's no new thoughts that come through. And then get outside, change your physicality, fresh air and oxygen. And if, if it's during the day, some sunlight. So that, my friends, is how I recommend you deal with stressful and anxious thoughts. And you can apply that to anything that is going on. And as you can imagine, after you've listened to this, there's going to be some things that you're like, yeah, wow, something's actually quite manageable. And when I do that, it might not even recur, occur, reoccur because I'm I've really managed this and now I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know exactly how I feel about it. I know why I'm feeling about why I'm feeling this way. Maybe I've just been triggered and you're way more aware. And there's other things like a heartbreak where you know it's going to keep happening every day and it's a process, but it really helps you in that moment and you can really snap out of the intensity in that moment. Okay. So hopefully you found that really helpful. Please give it a go. Please try those five steps out. It doesn't take long at all. So definitely give it a go and let me know on the Facebook group if you've given it a try and how you found it. If you found it difficult, if you found it easy, if you found it helpful, I'd love to know your feedback. So that is all for this section of the episode. And now it is time for the listener question. Great listener question. So definitely stay tuned for it. Okay. So time for the listener question. Hey Alexis, I just want to mention that you have helped me a lot with my self-love journey. You have given me new perspectives on life and have really made me regain my self-confidence after my breakup. I can't thank you enough for this help you've given me. I'm reaching out to you because I think I'm at a standstill with my healing slash growth journey and I almost feel like I'm regressing. For background, my ex ended our three-year relationship a year ago to figure himself out. I was devastated and moped around for a good bit. A month or so after the breakup, I finally started working on myself and forcing myself to get out of bed. I started getting back into my old hobbies and relishing in the single life. I also started dating someone new, but it didn't last long. It was still fun to just enjoy dating again and to feel free-spirited with nobody to worry about. At times, I still struggled with feeling lonely, but your podcast have really helped me work through that. Anyway, I thought I'd been doing great with my healing, but recently I feel like I'm stagnant. The fun hobbies I used to have are now feeling like routine and I almost feel dull doing them. I still enjoy them, just not as much as I did before. The I'd rather be by myself mindset has now made me feel like I'm not going to find someone who I can enjoy dating. I know I have a fear of abandonment too, so I don't want to get too close with anyone either. Because of this, it's extra hard to put myself out there now. To add on, I recently found out through a mutual friend that my ex has been dating someone new since February, which for some reason still hurt to hear, even though we'd been broken up a year since May. I thought I healed through the pain I felt from this guy, but now I feel old wounds resurfacing. I thought I already felt all these emotions before and laid them to rest, but I guess not. Mind you, my ex has come back twice and I rejected him both times because I knew I deserved better. I know if he tried to come back to me now, I would still reject him. I don't miss him. It's more the companionship that I crave. But I can't help but feel like I'm backtracking on my healing journey and growth since I'm feeling stagnant in my life. I recently found out about my ex dating someone new. In this 
Is this a normal stage everyone goes through, feeling like you're regressing on your healing path? If so, what are some tips that could help me push forward and forget about the past and be more in tune with myself now? How does one get past that feeling of backtracking? I can't express in words how grateful I would be for any advice that you give me. Much love. Okay, thank you so, 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 so much for writing in. This is a great question. Firstly, well, there's a lot of things that I want to say. But the first thing I'd like to touch on is the fact that it kind of really hurt to find out that your ex is dating somebody new. That's actually extremely common to feel that way. I feel like we go through many, every breakup, there's many stages through the breakup. And I think the final stage of grieving is the moment when you find out that your ex has moved on. It is this weird feeling that a lot of people can't put their finger on it, but it's this, you know, you think you're fine. You could have been the one that ended the relationship whether you ended it or they ended it, the fact that you said you didn't want him back when he came back, like you're sure that you don't want it, but it's like the final stage, it's that final knife and it's when you find out your ex is in a new relationship. Not everyone feels that way, but a lot of people have that. And I feel like there's many reasons behind it. Not everyone has the same reason, but there are many reasons behind it. I think for some people it means that it's absolutely final. For other people they subconsciously are comparing their journey of healing to their ex's journey of healing. And sometimes it kind of feels like, wait a minute, you're the cunt that fucked me over. How is it that you're now in a relationship and I'm doing all the work, I've been good, I've fucking worked my ass off and I have not found someone. Like how is that a thing? You know, so a lot of people, they they draw those comparisons and they, they get a lot of pain thinking like how is this <laughs> the dynamic and how are you happy in love and I'm not? Um, another another reason for that could be that it's just a reminder of the pain that you went through initially. It kind of resurfaces the initial feelings. So while it feels like you are regressing, you are not regressing. You're just working through that final hurdle that a lot of people still need to get through when that occurs in their life. So, like I said, some people are relieved when they find out that their ex started dating someone new. So this doesn't happen with absolutely everyone, but it is extremely common and it feels like you're going backwards. I was exactly the same that when I found out that my I did tried to do so much work to get over it. Although unlike you, I was still struggling a year on. So I was <laughs> I took way longer. But yeah, when I found out that he had moved on, oh my God, I thought that I was regressing so dramatically. It was like such a stab in the heart. And, you know, it's a bit different because I, you know, at the time still loved him. But it feels like all the work that you've done has just kind of evaporated and you're back to square one. But you're actually not back to square one. I truly believe that hearing about that information is just a, a trigger to what you felt when you went through the breakup and you kind of have to revisit that time, reprocess a whole bunch of these emotions. But because you're doing it a second or a third time, you're actually a lot better than you realize and you're actually a lot quicker at processing these things and you're looking at all these things through a different lens. So you have not regressed and it's completely normal for the mind to feel that way and for you to feel that way that pang in your heart, even though you don't want them back in your life. It's almost like the the end of an era, the closing of a chapter, and it's kind of rehashing those old wounds of the breakup. And that will fade relatively quickly. So I wouldn't, don't be too concerned about that. That's going to fade off pretty quickly. So that's that. I've covered that bit. Another thing that I wanted to mention is that 
you're in this single era and you'd rather be by yourself and all of that. But there's something very empowering and nice when you get to a point in your life where you're like, I'm very happy being single. I've done all the work to be single. I'm independent. I can rely on myself. I know that I'm resilient. I've, I've fucking, I've made it to where I want to make it single. But there's nothing wrong. It's actually quite beautiful to get to a point where you're like, I'm very happy being single. However, I'm at a point now where I'm really open to the idea of being in love again. And I think it takes a lot of swallowing your pride in a way to say that because I feel like when you've been hurt and you've gone through the heartbreak and then building yourself back up without someone by your side, without that romantic partner, without a companion and you've done the independent thing and you've built yourself back up to then say, oh, I want to be in love again. It's like, it almost feels like, no, I've just done all this work. I'm now independent. But it almost, it's almost like the next step forward to say, I'm happy to admit that I would like a companion. I'm not less of a person because I don't have one. I will be perfectly fine if it doesn't happen anytime soon. But I'm now at a point where I'd like it. And it's important to admit that to yourself because if you are suppressing that feeling and you're covering it up with saying, I've got fear of abandonment, I don't want to let anyone in, I don't want to let anyone in, then what's going to happen? You're not going to let anyone in and you're going to continue fearing abandonment. You listen very carefully to what your subconscious is saying to you. You know, you, you, everything that you have keep believing and retelling and retelling, your mind's going to be like, yep, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. I obviously believe that. That sounds legit. So you just keep rehashing these beliefs again and again and again. So instead, pay attention to what it is that you're truly ready for now. Maybe the fact that this triggered you so badly when you found out that your ex had moved on is because you're like, I want that. I want to be in love again. And this fucking clown got it and I don't. So it's perfectly fine to say, you know what? I love being single. Love myself sick. This is great. But I'm now genuinely ready. I don't need a rebound. I'm not seeking someone because I'm not happy within myself. I'm looking for someone because I'm ready to be in love. I'm ready to share things with somebody. I don't need them, but I would love to have them in my life. So I think that that could be a reason why you're having this confusion. Now, when it comes to your own self-love journey, is it normal to feel like you're regressing on your healing path? Absolutely. I think a lot of people go through waves in your life. You know, even though if you look back over time, you can see an upward trajectory overall with, you know, what you've achieved in your happiness. But if you zoom in and you look closely, that line is not straight. It's going up and down. It goes a bit higher, a little bit lower, a bit higher, a bit lower. And that's with, you can use that analogy on absolutely everything. You can use it on, you know, when, when you're training your body for strength gains, it's the same thing. You know, you, you get all these improvements and then you just plateau for ages. And then it takes, you know, a little bit of rebuilding and then you start increasing again and then you plateau. The same can be said for your, you know, your healing path is, you know, you might find these things that cause you to plateau, certain pieces of information that come through that cause you to plateau, maybe a rebound, maybe an interaction with somebody. So when that happens, it's kind of a good time to regroup and to look at what you're doing with your life and be like, I love this. I want to do more of that. Um, this has served its purpose and I don't need to do more of that. I'm really interested in doing something new. So maybe I could tap into that thing. You know, these moments of kind of rest and digest plateauing are really good to crack everything open and be like, all right, 
I'm kind of plateauing. Let's re let's let's kind of repackage myself again because your whole life is about rebranding, repackaging, rebranding, repackaging. You know, trying something new, starting again. It, it, it'll be like that until the day you die. You, you uh, I feel like we're never in a good way. We're never going to be a hundred percent satisfied. And I hope I, I hope none of us are ever a hundred percent satisfied with the journey because it's nice to be hungry and always be wanting more. You should be grateful and present and enjoying your life. But there should be always things that you want to work towards and things that you're wanting to achieve and things that you're wanting to grow on. So I think it's not a bad thing when you reach the position that you're in and plateauing because it's just an indication that you're probably ready for the next level of things. And that's very exciting. It's very cool. And so it doesn't feel great, but it's an indication that you're ready for something more. Obviously you're ready for a relationship, for a companion. And, you know, I feel like a big part of becoming vulnerable again is just admitting it to yourself. When you can admit it to yourself and you can just comfortably say it out loud to the people that are close to you saying, I'd like to, you know, I think people think, oh my God, I'm going to look like I'm desperate. You don't (laughs) at all. It's perfectly, it's actually quite nice to hear someone say, I'm really open to finding love now. It's beautiful. It's not saying you're desperate. It's not saying you need it. It's something that you're open to. So once you can admit that out loud and feel comfortable, then you're going to start to soften how you feel towards letting people into your life. You're going to feel a lot more confident within yourself, how you feel, and you're going to be more open to meeting people on a romantic basis. Okay. Um, yeah, I really hope that that helped. I don't know if I've exactly addressed everything, but like I said, when you feel that you're backtracking, it's purely, I believe that it means that you're ready for the next step. You're ready for something more. And that is the time to go inwards and really look at everything. And this is your opportunity to discard what's not working for you anymore, discard what served a purpose but no longer does, um, a hobby that you loved, but maybe you can just put it on ice and try something new. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, maybe reach out to friends who you haven't really kept in touch with, but really fueled your fire. You know, reach out to those people again, start hanging out with other people or doing different things with your friends. This is the time to level up again. So the times that I've felt that way has been every time I felt like I've regressed, whether it's professionally, personally, emotionally, whatever it is, Every time I feel like I've regressed, soon after that has been a massive growth spurt, um, you know, a, a massive period of not just growth but of learning and experiences. And I've been able to look back and say, wow, that's that's why I was feeling that way because then this was about to happen and then this big thing happened and it served me for all these reasons. So it's it's not all bad. It will turn around. Um, so yeah, hopefully that helped. Thank you so much. Thank you for sending in that question. That was fucking awesome. And of course, if you guys want to, want me to answer your questions, you can submit it either via the website, dyfmpod.com or just write an email to info at dyfmpod.com. Thank you guys so much. Love you all. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Don't care.